155th episode of the Not Your Mama's Gamer podcast, a podcast where we talk about games and gaming from a feminist perspective. My name is Samantha Blackman, and I'm an associate professor here at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, where I talk about, read about, write about, dream about, amongst other things, video games, video games, video games. And I am joined tonight um, by a special guest as well as one of our podcast regulars and co-host. I'm going to be polite and start with our guest. We are joined tonight, first and foremost, by Dr. Carly Kucerek. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Yay! She's going to say yes no matter what. Um, Who uh, is an assistant professor of digital humanities and media studies at the Illinois Institute of Technology, which is right up the road from us. Yeah, I just got tenure, oh. actually, so it's an associate now. Oh, so? Oh, yeah. see, that is very important. Yay! <laughs> Yay! See, now, now we have to drink heavily during the podcast to celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, I I'm hope sure they'll update the website eventually. I don't know how they do <laughs> things. Yay! So, okay, we'll, we'll, drink, we'll drink to that. Yay! And, I'm sorry, our regular co-host tonight... Is Alicia Carabinus. Hello, Alicia Carabinus. Hello. I am a PhD student at Purdue University. Um, Sam is my person uh, who controls my life. And this summer I have exams, <laughs> so everything is really awful. It's all wonderful. You'll do great. Yay. Yay. So we're going to have a nice conversation with Carly tonight about her work and some fun stuff um but before we get to that we are going to do something even more fun and start with our usual what you're playing what you're reading what you're drinking because those are always important things yeah uh and (laughs) especially the drinking part um and like i said because we're going to pretend we have some manners around here we are going to start with Carly. Carly, what you playing lately? Uh, we've been playing uh, Lego Dimensions a lot, which I really like. I, mm-hmm. I used to work in a toy store, so I love toys. Um, <sighs> and I, I've been really interested in all the RFID-enabled toys and games and, and things like that. So it's been really fun to kind of... I mean, it's all the strengths of the Lego games, but then also to have that component of kind of like the, the actual physical toys has been really, really fun. And the way they cross universes and things is... I think pretty entertaining. So um, that's that I've been playing a lot. And then I'm also still obsessed with the Zoom Zoom game for line on my phone, which is just like so <laughs> cute and so soothing. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the two things I've been paying the most attention to lately. All fun stuff. I love the Lego Dimensions um, game. And I, I don't know if I love the Lego Dimensions game as much as I love buying all those little Lego kits. It's very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, like, sometimes some of our little, like, Lego 
like the little bases for the people that you have to put on. Um, some of them just have like a little tag with a name on it because the little people have been appropriated to join um, the, the the cities on our on our on our two Lego tables across the room. <laughs> so so sometimes there's home, like, <laughs> so when they come home, we know where they go. <laughs> like there's one that just says there's one little tag that just says Gandalf. And there's one with a little tag that just says Doctor Who. <laughs> so sweet. But the the actual little figures are gone. Um, okay. What about you, Alicia? What you been playing, darling? Uh, well, because I am studying mostly, and I'm also moving, so it's a big summer. Uh, I've been mostly playing games that I can do in short bursts, right? Like break time bursts. So I've been playing uh, mostly Overwatch and Hearthstone. Uh, mm-hmm. Blizzard gets all my attention and all my love in these times of crises, um, multiple crises. And I've also been playing the uh, the app for Splendor on my phone um, oh, yeah. because it's it's the AI is pretty good and you can set it to have different characteristics. So mm-hmm. at night, while I'm trying to sleep and mostly worried about my future and my life, um, I suffer by subjecting myself to really brutal AI in Splendor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good times. That 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 sounds healthy. <laughs> I'm, we're all just doing the best we can, Sam. <laughs> all right. So I guess it's my turn. Well, um, I've been super busy because um, you know in the summer we're academics, so we don't work at all. Um, so I've been working. So I've been working or not working. Um, no kidding. Just getting working on. Um, a couple of academic projects, um, as well as, um, another, another project, um, which is getting us ready for our next gaming for good marathon. Yay. Um, details forthcoming. Um, but here's, is here's suffice it to say, it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be, um, as opposed to all the ones that aren't fun. No, (laughs) they're always fun. About to say they're always fun. Um, but this, this time around, this is our summer one, this quarter, um, I'll give a couple of spoilers. Um, we are going to be raising funds for the Trevor project. Um, and as, as I promised, as we promised and we roped her into, uh, when she came on the show, um, Jen slash Moto from Girl Tribe Gaming um, is joining us um, as well as some other fun folks, streamers um, that we are roping into helping us raise money for a great cause. So um, I'm really excited Um, and it feels like a larger scale um, uh, campaign than the ones that we've done previously, um, which is why I think I've been uh, more more busy or busier, <laughs> more busy, busy, m- most busy, uh, busier uh, with getting the planning and logistics done um, with this one than I have with some of the previous ones. But I'm super excited about it simply because it does uh, it is going to be a larger scale and hopefully it's something that we can maintain so that we can start doing more good um, with the with the with the marathons and the campaigns that we do. I'm excited about that. But. So that being said, that's what I've been really busy with. Um, but I've also been playing a couple of things. Um, 
I have been playing Deep End Games uh, Perception. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a cuckoo clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Um, so I've been playing Perception. Um, and if folks remember, we had Amanda Gardner from Deep End on the show a while back. Um, and we were we were really we had a great time talking to her and we had a great time talking about the game um which perception for those who don't know is a is kind of a i think it's more psychological horror than anything else but you play the you, the protagonist you play is a blind woman um who is uh oh good good what's a good way to play good, she's kind of haunted by this house that she's never been to. Um, so she goes to this house alone as a blind woman. She sees, she quote unquote sees, um, with echolocation, kind of like a bat. So she taps and she's able to see things around her. Um, but so here's the thing. So you tap and there's a presence in this house. And that is what it's called is the presence. So you can tap and see things, but the more noise you make, you're going to bring the presence looking for you. And that's not something you want to happen. <laughs> right. Um, but what happens to, to not get spoilery, but to but to give a little bit of, of in terms of how the narrative unfolds is there are past lives that are present in this house. Um, and she, Cassie, the protagonist, um gets to explore the house and things that she finds in the house to find out about these past lives um, and try to figure out why the presence is there and ultimately trying to figure out why this house um, is haunting her um, in her dreams. Um, so it's it's super interesting. The narrative is, is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, I am uh, on chapter three of four um and the first two were were just kind of like wow um so perception is definitely if you are into games that are not like scary horror games but are more psychological horror that have a great narrative perception is definitely the way you're going to want to go um and the other game that i've been playing and i just started playing a little bit of excuse me, after playing through the demo is Ever Oasis on the 3DS, which is so fun because it's kind of like um, Zelda meets Animal Crossing. So it's very strange. You're, you're this, it's an RPG, um, but it's a world building RPG. So you play this little character whose name is Tethu um, hmm. and you meet little people that come into your oasis um, and each one has different skills um, and different abilities, uh, but they also have uh, different careers, shall we say. So if you can convince them to stay by doing uh, quests for them, and Alicia would hate this because she hates all fetch quests. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> You can convince them to stay and they will build little shops in your oasis. And then once you build the little shops, you also have to keep them stocked um, with things that you find like out in the in the desert around the oasis as well as in the oasis. So it's been a lot of fun. It's a super cute game. 
Um, and it's easy to start playing it and then like look up. It's like, oh, wow, where'd that two hours go? Because my bat, my little red light's blinking. Um, so that's what I've been playing. Hmm. Um, so that's what we're playing. Is anybody reading anything interesting? What about you, Carly? Um, I actually just read To Like the Lightning um, by Ada Palmer. I believe that's her name. She's a historian at the University of Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. She does intellectual history, but it's a science fiction book that's this like really intense political intrigue that's in like 500 years in the future. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, I couldn't put it down. And then, of course, I finished, and I'm like, oh, no, there's a sequel, and this one just stopped. So I, I actually i am going to visit my parents this weekend and I ordered the sequel and had it sent to their house so it's ready for me when I get there uh, but it's so interesting and like you know it got a lot of um, a lot of attention as a debut novel and stuff but it's so fun because you're like reading along and they're like you know actually we're going to talk about like you know enlightenment thinking a lot or like you know now we're going to talk about like Diderot a lot and I'm like this is great <laughs> so um, yeah that's fantastic I, I love I read a lot of science fiction I love reading science fiction I kind of like mm-hmm. imagining other worlds um, so yeah, that one was really fun. So we actually gave it to me as a gift and I don't think I would have come across it on my own necessarily. Um, cause it's a little, it's a little more, I don't know. It's a little more dense, I think, than a lot of the stuff I go for, but it, it's really cool. And I'm really looking forward to the sequel. That sounds really good. What was it called? To like the lightning, hmm. like T E T O O, like too much like the lightning, but mm-hmm. too like the lightning. Um, yeah, and it's super, super cool. And that does sound interesting. There's an unreliable narrator, narrator which is always fun. So you're like, yes. is this real? Ooh. Unclear. <laughs> like, yeah, I think I might have to find this. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I have just a glimpse into future podcasts. In a few weeks, you'll be like, what are you reading? I'll be like, that book that Carly said. Yeah, exactly. So, That's what happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we pick up more books because of what people say they're <laughs> reading on this podcast. <laughs> Yep, secret reveal. That's why we ask. <laughs> so it's great. Well, um, I uh, I was talking with some friends, and it came about that I had never read a Discworld novel. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I read I read Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, but that's like the only thing I've ever read by Terry Pratchett. Um, which is like a huge hole in my geek cred. Sorry, guys. But it's one of those mm-hmm. things that's so ubiquitous that I feel like I know it, and I never had to read it. But um, after like a forty-five minute argument about which book I should read first, and somebody actually produced a chart, uh, <laughs> I am yep. reading. I'm reading Mort. I just started it. I'm only like, I don't know, like twenty pages in. Um, but I felt by the time they were done, like they worked. I felt bad. I felt like I have to read these books now. I have to read at least like four of them. <laughs> Um, yeah, they have this chart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and it was elaborate. And the first one they found was in Hebrew, and they're like, okay, let's translate it. And I'm like, I think we could probably find one in English, guys. Um, we could just Google longer. And then they were, like, annotating. I don't know. It was, it was, people are very dedicated, I guess. Yes, they this, are. To Discworld. So, yeah. I'm sorry, Geek Nation, that I haven't done this before. I'm going to do it now. Okay, so here's the thing I don't know if you have an original PlayStation. Um, I might like you enough to loan you mine, but if you really like the Discworld novels, I believe it was the original PlayStation. Carly, maybe you remember, if, I think it was the original PlayStation that there was the Discworld game for. Oh, I don't know. Okay. So I have the game. 
Um, and I believe it was the oh, original boy. PlayStation. Um, so it's got the same kind of humor and it's a point and click adventure game. Um, it's actually really funny and it's really good. I've heard about that. Yeah. If you get into Discworld and you like Discworld and the humor in Discworld, you will love the game and I will loan it to you under the, uh, with the, with the promise that I get to behead you if anything happens to my, uh, my Discworld, my place. I mean, Okay. You threatened to <laughs> maim me in some way, like at least twice a week. So that's fine. Oh, don't tell people that. Even <laughs> if it is true. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's see. What have I been reading? Um, oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll say what I've been reading. I've been rereading slash reading because I've read chapters from it before. Um, uh, oh, and I'm going to slaughter her name because I don't know how to pronounce it. To, uh, Judy Wackman's Technofeminism. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's Wackman, right? It's W-A-J-C-M-A-N. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but I, I always say Wackman. Uh, but Technofeminism, um, as well as a lot of more recent stuff on Technofeminism because Wackman's book was like... T- it's like almost 20 years old, right? Um, it's pretty old. Um, but uh, so I've been rereading that and I'd read sections of it before for other things. Um, and like I said, more recent stuff by people on techno feminism and, and uh, techno science and the like or feminist techno science. Um, well, because, you know, I'm proposing something i guess for uh, a collection on techno feminism uh that's about all i've been reading to be perfectly honest i haven't had any time to read anything for fun because i've been super duper busy doing a multitude of other things um including playing video games because <laughs> video games are important Video games are important. Video games are important that's what that's what i've been doing um for the last week right Anyways, just reading techno-feminism. All right. Now, here's the important question. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm boring, and I'm drinking water. <laughs> I have a flight tomorrow morning, so i uh trying to pull it together, hold it together. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to pack later. <laughs> well, that's okay. So, we'll, we'll give you that. Drinking water's fine. You have an excuse. We support Not the drinking of water. You should stay hydrated. Yes, you should, especially if you're going to fly. <laughs> I get terribly dehydrated on airplanes. So I know, it's the worst, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, especially when you start going on, like, long flights that are, lo- like, longer than four, five, six hours long. Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like a husk when I get off the plane. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I feel like, um, oh, what was her name in Doctor Who? The woman's always like, moisturize me. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I feel like at that point. All right, <laughs> Alicia, what you drinking, darling? I um, am drinking a new to me beer, mm-hmm. which is the Dogfish Head. Uh, and I, usually, I avoid everything in the known world that is named Namaste because, I mean, you know, it means it's like yeah. the the king of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But this is the Namaste White, and here's why I bought it. I'm going to read you the label, and you'll you'll know, Sam. <laughs> All right. Our Belgian-style white ale brewed with dried organic orange flesh and peel, fresh-cut lemongrass, coriander, peppercorns. Yes. You were trying to get that beer that I brought you last summer. Yes, that and then that one, <laughs> the only good blue moon that ever existed, the the first peach or whatever, which also yep, had coriander peach. in it and was so good. So basically mm-hmm. now anytime something has coriander in it, I'm like, get in my mouth. <laughs> um, and it's never the same. But this is pretty good. It's a... Uh, it's an interesting first taste, right? Like, there's a lot going on. It's orange and lemongrass and coriander and peppercorns and, like, beer. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so, I mean, it, I kind of, like, shook my head on the first time. Like, whoa. But uh, it smooths out almost instantly. It's really, like, clean and refreshing. My husband mm. was like, oh, it's a refreshing summer beer. Like, you sound like an ad. It was great. But uh, it's pretty tasty. I like it. Cool. Um, well, I am not drinking anything new because I buy so much beer <laughs> that I now have like five cases of beer under my kitchen table. <laughs> I'll be right um, over. <laughs> so I'm trying to go through some of the ones that I have um, so that I can like get rid of some of those and not feel like I'm hoarding beer. Um, so I'm drinking what was in the upstairs fridge right now, and that is... Uh, the Cider Boys, uh, the Peach Country, the Peach County, <sighs> um, which is really good. It's, is it? Uh, it is. is. It? Oh, it God. is. It is. It's really good. Um, it's not artificially peach. Uh, it's juice, more juicy peach, um, and it balances out pretty good with the with the uh, with the apple cider. It's not like one of those ones that. <clears throat> excuse me. That overpowers um, where the apple overpowers the other the added fruit that they have, mm-hmm. um, and then it just tastes like a weird apple. It just tastes like a weird hard apple cider. But yeah, the cider boys. But I really like cider boys. Yes, um, and I'm, I'm still jealous. waiting for the cider boys pineapple cider to turn up the pineapple hula because that is the best pineapple cider I have ever put in my mouth. Mm-hmm. So it's very good. I'm looking forward to finding that one. Whatever, I'm, wait, I'm looking forward to them like sponsoring the podcast since we talk about them all the time. <laughs> well, especially since we can find the Cider Boys locally now. So I'm hoping once we get closer to pineapple beer, pineapple cider season, we'll be able to find it. Because then I'm going to I'm gonna buy like six cases of it and stick it under my table in my kitchen. And I'm going to hide it from you. That's the day so. I move in. <laughs> at least for at least for two or three days until it's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm drinking. Cool. So yeah, that was that's fun. But I guess this gives us the opportunity now to talk to Carly, who's been very busy in the past <laughs> couple of years. Yeah, no kidding. So, um, Carly, uh, we've been, we were super excited when you agreed to come on the podcast um, for a number of reasons, but most, more, most so because we're really interested in the work that you do um, and, um, and how you do the work that you do, for, from my perspective. Um, 
because I've done uh, archival work in the past. Um, so archives and uh, digging through people's histories are is super interesting to me. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to bug you about some of that stuff in a little bit. But before we start, before we start that. Um, I'm sorry. There was firecrackers started going off or fireworks started going off outside my outside uh, my window. And I was like, Indiana, it, where it Independence me. Day lasts for like six fucking months. <laughs> yes. Well, they started. They started with them like a week ago. And it just like the first one went off and it was really big. So it just kind of made, like, it made me jump. Um, so I'm sorry. Uh, but first, Carly, tell us about your work. Um I know it's a big question, right? Sure. So I usually say I do kind of three things. Um, the thing that I'm kind of most trained in or that I've spent the most time doing is that I'm a cultural historian um, mm-hmm. by training. And so I'm interested in kind of the intersections of gender and history and games, right? And so that's that's kind of like the, the place I start at. And with that, I'm also interested in kind of contemporary issues in and around the games industry as they relate to those things. Um, because like most historians, I'm convinced that the past informs the present. Um, and then yeah. the third thing I do is I actually develop games. And I'm particularly interested in games that I think um, kind of encourage difficult conversations or, or kind of like try and get people to think through things they might not um, might not be thinking about otherwise or things like this. I like telling complicated stories. I like sparking, you know, kind of difficult um, discussion. And I also like just kind of playing with like, what are the, what are the edges of what a game might be or mm-hmm. what a game could do? Um, cool. And so that's kind of, that's kind of uh, where I'm at. So, um, you know, I, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I, I'm in a program that values that and lets me do that. So it's been, it's been nice um, to be somewhere that, you know, I'm like, well, does this count? And they're like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. We don't really know what you do anyway, you know. And it, it's, it's the kind of, like, really nice benign disinterest where they're like, yeah, it's good that you're doing good. We don't know what that means, you know. So, um, you know, and the university's been very supportive and, and very excited about the stuff I do. But they they're, they give me a lot of leeway to kind of pick, pick what I want to focus on, uh, too. Mm-hmm. That is, that's awesome. I'm really interested in, uh, in the way people work. <laughs> Sam's laughing. She knows what I'm going to say. To establish those boundaries around games. So to see somebody like actively pushing that in development um, is fascinating. Because I always get kind of frustrated like reading, you know, theory and and everything about like, well, this is what a game is and this is what it is. And I'm like, but then there's some shit that came out like last week that totally just blows that out of the water. Because it's still such a developing form, you know? We have no idea what games are going to be in five or ten years. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think it's useful to have that discussion, right? Because it's useful to think about like, and I don't think it's useful in the like what counts way. Like I'm really right, interested right. In, in, in like what counts as a game. Um, but I think it's always useful to have like a working definition for yourself, um, mm-hmm. you know? And so... And, and I spend time on this with my students, and I, I love it, right? Like, um, because it is, it's, like, such a good provocative question where it's like, oh, what is a game? And they're like, oh, uh, ooh. And I'm like, does somebody have to win? And they're like, oh, I don't know, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love it. But, it, yeah, it's, like, a super provocative question. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not always convinced that it's a fruitful question when we're actually considering texts. Like, um I don't know. I think maybe it's more useful to think about like, okay, like whether or not this is a game, like what's, what's a useful frame to understand this? What's it it similar to? What's it doing? Like how do people engage with it? Like, you know, um, and 
I don't know, like, sometimes I think that's a little more useful, and I think sometimes we stop using terminology that's actually really valuable, right? So, like, if you think about something like an interactive novel, right? Like, an interactive novel is only sort of a game. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a game, maybe it's not. But, like, it is an interactive novel, and you can understand it maybe in that context of being that kind of thing, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, this is something I talk about a lot with students is, like, it doesn't figure out what you're making and what it's similar to, but, like, you don't have to, like, actually, like, you know, you don't have to make something that looks like what exists or that looks, you know, or maybe you do want to make something that looks like what exists, but, like, it doesn't, there's not, like, only some things that count as games, and and it's not, you can take game design principles and make things that aren't games, and they might still be really, really cool and interesting, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that just makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah, when when she said that, I was like, "Oh, here comes Alicia." <laughs> so, okay, and that, that's really interesting, and I and and I'm and I'm glad that Alicia got that that opportunity to ask that question because I want to jump for a second because I want to talk to you about your most recent book, right? The one on Brenda Laurel, Pioneering Games for Girls. It's called Brenda Laurel, Pioneering Games for Girls, but. Before we jump into that one, can I talk to you about your first book first, right? Yeah, of course. Um, is Coin? I had to, I had to look up the full to- to- title: Coin-operated Americans uh, rebooting boyhood at the video game arcade. Right? What sparked that book for you? So I, I had, I think, like many people, kind of like stumbling into a dissertation. I. I was interested in like some things and, you know, I knew I was interested in kind of gender and technology. Um, and then I was involved in a project actually about barbecue. Um, <laughs> okay. My advisor, my advisor, Elizabeth Englehart, who's now at UNC, she's a food studies expert. She's, she's wonderful. Um, and so I took her class on food culture and cause my degree is in American studies, which is, mm-hmm. I always joke that it's like being raised by wolves. Like, cause nobody knows what it is. And like everyone mm-hmm. does really different work. Um, but anyway, uh, I took her class on food culture, and like the there was interest in um, from the Southern Foodways Alliance, uh, Southern Foodways, Southern Southern Foodways. There was interest from Southern Foodways, and there was interest um, from the University of Texas Press, both, and kind of like doing some oral histories about barbecue culture around the area. And so we started collecting oral histories from that for that class, and like I loved it. Um, I'd been. I, I did a lot of freelance writing for a long time and like, I love interviewing people and I always have, but I'd never done that kind of like really long involved interviewing. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. I love this so much. Like, this is great. And so I kind of like vaguely knew I wanted to do some interviews for a dissertation. And like, I had this and that I was interested in. And one of, one of the people I worked with um, at university of Texas was like, well, why don't you do some, you know, why don't you do some oral histories of video games? Like that's, that seems interesting. It, it is. It's super interesting. But uh, from that, like, I just, I started reading the stuff that was out that was about games and gender. And there's lots of great research on games and gender, right? But almost all of it I can find, and I think it really, like, the stuff that people are familiar with, it really starts with, you know, from uh, Barbie and Mortal Kombat. Um, but, like, we already had, like, a not love, like, this weird playing field at that point. Like, we already had that, like, girls weren't gaming or maybe, like, were marginalized in gaming or something. And I was just like, didn't nobody stop and think like this is really weird like like why did that happen mm-hmm. like that is so weird if you think about it because like we don't talk about like movies as a gendered form in that way or television and you know like or like with the radio and i mean i'm not saying there's no gender politics in these things but like we don't think of like other i don't think there's another media form that we think of 
in such like intense gendered terms. No. Um, wow. And I'm like, man, how did that happen? That's, that's like real weird. And so I got obsessed with like trying to figure out how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, it, it was so funny cause I, I came from a program that really specialized in cultural history and like the whole time there, I'm like, I'm not going to do a history project, grah, grah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so grumpy. Um, yeah. and then of course, like the question I actually answered is absolutely a historical question. Like that is, there's no other way to answer that question. Um, and so I just ended up like looking at everything I could find that was old. Right. And I, I remember I went to <laughs> King Kong in the theater alone, like while I was supposed to be reading for exams or something. And they show that picture that's that famous picture that was taken in downtown Ottumwa, Iowa. And it's like, you know, the bank of arcade games and all these young men. And I'm like, what's happening? Like, like they're cheerleaders. Like why did this happen? Um, and you know, mm-hmm. th- there's an answer to that, which is that Walter day, um, you know, promoted to, to light magazine until they excited, they decided to do this, but it's such a provocative image. And, and so like, I actually, the first part of that book that was written was only about that picture wow. and, and the history of that picture. And like, why does this yeah. happen? And, but that picture is iconic. Right. And like that mode of play becomes really iconic and the industry really celebrates it because it looks respectable to have these like kind of middle-class white young men playing. Yep. Um, and you can talk about like technical achievement and hand-eye coordination and all these things that can be co-opted for military use or for like, um, corporate use or things like this. And so it becomes like, it's, it's so complicated. It's so interesting, but I'm like, okay, I see how, right. Like I see what happened. Um, and I don't think it's the only possible explanation for what happened, but I think it's, it's one of the things that happened is you have this popular discourse that's Mm -hmm. so invested in a very particular idea of who's playing and why they're playing and how they're playing and who's making the games. And, you know, it's, it totally informs the way, like it's a startup culture because we have like Atari and Exidy and all these companies, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also an older culture of coin-op that like coin-op is so desperate to be respectable, Mm -hmm. um, because it was so associated with like. Uh, money laundering and stuff and there's it, it's like debatable how much that was ever actually a factor i mean absolutely al capone launder like the phrase money laundering is because al capone owned coin laundries and that was how he cleaned his money <laughs> like he because the machines don't count right so you can overclaim how much money came in um but you know it, it's unclear like how much the industry was actually ever tangled up but like the coin app industry like wants to be respectable they don't want to be seen as seedy they don't want to you know like they want to be seen as like family businesses they're providing like wholesome amusements for americans right and so this is this is their chance yeah. um and so there's so much going on there and it's it's such i mean like any <laughs> any interesting story there's all these like interesting dramas and sub stories and things like that mm-hmm. um you know and it's like there's teenagers and there's like people running that are CEOs and there's like old jukebox companies and there's like lawmakers and PTO presidents and like all these people. Right. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's super interesting. So that's kind of what that came out of. I did a ton of archival work. Um, none of those magazines are well, well preserved or well indexed. None of them are indexed at all. Um, there's only partial runs of most of them available um, and they're in different places. So like I saw some of them in the library of Congress, some of them in the, um, the Harold Washington library center here in Chicago, which is fantastic. Um, And then some of them um, at the strong museum of plays, uh, Brian Sutton Smith um, library and archives of play, which is also fantastic um, and does a really great job supporting researchers. And also I just, I have to brag about them. They're so nice. Like I email them and I'm like, Hey, do you have like a, a scan of American girl doll catalog maybe from like the eighties? <laughs> and they're like, Oh, well we don't, but we'll scan one for you right now. 
Mm -hmm. They're so nice. Wow. Um, Yeah, so I ask them weird questions all the time. It's great. Um, But they're fantastic. And so it's really like all these pieces put together. I went out to Atumwa. I interviewed Walter Day. I interviewed some of the other, you know, people who are now, you know, um, adults who were children then and who played there. I interviewed some of the kind of city boosters that are trying to really make that part of the town's identity again. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things going on there and it's all so, so interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's whole other books to write, um, about, you know, all the things going on there, but, yeah, so that, that's kind of how that came out. Is I was like, why did this happen, right? Which I always tell my students, I'm like, your best research question is a really simple question. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why did that happen? Good question. How did this happen? Good question, right? Like, um, so, yeah, that was, that was like a massive, many years long uh, project. It was an amazing project. And, and, and it kind of resonated for me because I'm old. And, and Alicia likes to tease me about that. Um <laughs> <laughs> but um, I spent a lot of time um, in arcades um, way back in the day when, you know, arcades were still seen as being um, were, were still seen as being shifty. Right. For some re- for some reason. And nobody was quite sure why. In, in terms of nobody we're talking about the kids. Um, but it was really odd odd in scare quotes right for me to be um in this arcade all the time uh one because it was like a half block literally a half block away from my house um because I was a girl mm-hmm. um but I think a lot of to think about things like identity politics um a lot of that had to do with the fact that you know what I had no um, romantic interest in boys. <laughs> so the other girls who would, you know, be, you know, kind of tentative about going because they had a crush on one boy or another, or they were afraid of what the boys would think if they were hanging out in arcades um, and all of these other things, or that they were doing things that weren't girly enough. I didn't give a damn because I wasn't girly to begin with and I had no interest in boys. So I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was play video games. <laughs> um but and it, and it is interesting when you start to talk about and, and uh, when in your book when you talk about these things right because it never occurred to me why parents thought um, arcades were these shifty places where all kinds of horrible things were going to happen and all kinds of horrible things were happening and we're like no there there are games there and and we're playing games. Um, kind of thing yeah well, there's always a fundamental thing which is like we hate unsupervised sorry cuckoo clock just a sec <laughs> um i mean we we hate unsupervised teenagers like it's so like at all cultural levels right like we find unsupervised groups of teenagers unacceptable mm-hmm. and and so like because there's like kids there they're like unsupervised or loosely supervised like you're already in trouble and then it's dark Mm -hmm. right like there's so many things and and like adults are like not good at the games or like maybe adults are there but then like that's suspect too so yeah they're really really i mean it's it's such an interesting Mm -hmm. kind of like um nexus of things yeah yeah so i was it was when i when um when you're when coin operated americans first came out and i was like i want to see what this says and i was like this resonates with me so um I just wanted to say that I find that absolutely fascinating. So if people are interested well, in uh, in history, games, arcades specifically, um, 
definitely a, a good one to check out. Because um, I, I was, I have to say, when I when I first saw the title, I was like, "Rebooting Boyhood." Here, here the fireworks going on outside my house. <laughs> um, I was like, "Rebooting Boyhood." I don't know how I feel about that. But then, as I started to read the book and started to think through my own experience. It made perfect sense, right? Because mm-hmm. it was a very gendered space for a number of reasons. Right. And my point is never that nobody else is there, right? I'm, my right. point is right. that there's a public narrative about who's there that's, yeah. that's pretty yeah. limited. Yeah. And see, and Sam, that's why I think your your story, it, it kind of sparks something. I'm sitting here, I'm like sketching, and then I stopped. Um, because what you said about, you know, being there and like not being interested in boys, um, that's so... I grew up not so much in arcades, but like when I was a teenager, I played a lot of competitive magic. So I was always at gaming stores. Um, and, uh, you know, I was often there with a boyfriend, but I would get really pissed about it when people brought that up <laughs> because I was also just there because I wanted to play cards and I happened to have a boyfriend who also did because, surprise, people share interests sometimes. Um and it's to see that kind of thing continuing to repeat in different spaces. Like you can draw a line through that historically. Mm-hmm. Um, that struggle of no matter what your motivation is, if you're a woman in these spaces, like that's there's always some troubling shit going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was I'm really grateful for books like this, Carly, because there's not a lot out there on this kind of thing. Like when you know when we were talking about like getting started on it and not having a lot of the materials available or having to go all over for it. Um, the only thing I could think of before is there was that really good long form piece on Polygon a few years ago called no girls allowed. I'm sure you, you probably read it. Um, Mm -hmm. but about the, the gendered marketing in video games and how it became like boy centric. And it's one of the only things that was like readily available that addressed this stuff in a really like holistic way. And every time I find myself trying to look something up, there's like, there's just, there's nothing. I'm like, how have we not done more with, with this? <laughs> you know, because yeah. it is such a fundamental question of like how, how games came to be what they are now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's just, I mean, I'm sure for somebody like you, who's used to digging and putting stuff together in that way, you know, you can see like this whole patchwork narrative or somebody like me who's just like in the library trying to look stuff up. Like, why isn't there more written on this? Like, what's going on? It's really, it's it's really hard. Like it, archival work's a pain and it's, it's often thankless, right? You go through hundreds of documents. You have no idea what's important. So you're like frantically Xeroxing everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, people, people think I'm joking and they're like, oh, how do you organize your files? And I'm like, well, I had this pile of like a thousand sheets of paper that I Xeroxed and I put post-it flags on them. Yep. And people are like, there's no way that's what you actually do. I'm like, no, that's that's really what I do. Like, it's really, like, there's a box in my office that has my thousand Xeroxed <laughs> things from trade journals and like all these post-its hanging out of it because like, yep. I'm I'm like really a visual person. And so like, I want to be able to spread them all out and stuff. But then like, I want to keep them in order too. So it's this like really careful uh, balance. But yeah, cause you, you often don't know when you're looking and like everything's weird and fascinating because like it's the past is so strange, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's tons of stuff that I collect and then I'm like, actually, this is like not of any value. And like, you know, there's like tons of examples that get cut from the manuscript just because it could be twice as long to just be like, and this other time, this other thing happened, you know, and it's not, it's not the main story. It's just one of the thousands of stories that like are part of the constellation. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. I have several cases full of uh, similar, uh, similar, like, for lack of a better word, photocopies with little, little post-it flags and post-it notes hanging over the edge with little notes scrawled on them um, because I, I need to be able to access them in a very tactile way when I'm working on a project. Um and it's something that I've never been able to do with like scans of things for right. some reason. And I find it really frustrating because I do a lot of uh, digital community work now, right? Like I do a lot with Twitter and you can't really do the same thing there. So I, my, okay, so I have two monitors. This is really embarrassing and I never talk about this, but if I minimize everything on my monitors right now, uh, <laughs> which I'm doing, um, the two screens are, um, I would say about 80% full of screenshots. And they're screen, mm-hmm. screenshots of Twitter. And I have them grouped visually. Like I come in every couple of days and rearrange things. <laughs> because I know what they are. And I mean, I have to expand them, you know, to see what they are. But that's, that's the only way I can keep organized when I'm thinking about, like, what's happening on Twitter and how things connect. My husband also really makes fun of my office that it's super messy. But if I need something, I can be like, that is on the pile to the left Three items down underneath the scarf. That's right there. So, you know, we got our systems. Systems are important. You and I are gonna have to have a chat about file hygiene before we uh, <laughs> before we start the dissertation process, right? <laughs> I have my systems, and systems are important. <laughs> I I completely understand. I completely understand. So. Um, that's quite operated Americans. So tell, okay. The Brenda Laurel book one is, uh, a part of the, um, influential game designers series that you, you actually co-edit that series. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, Jennifer DeWinter. Who's at Worcester Polytechnic and I, yep. um, she and I co-edit that together. Yeah. So, um, and there've been some, there've been some good books that have come out of that series. Um, uh, the the Jane Jensen book, like I say, good books because they're 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 game designers that I really like, right? Um, Jane Jensen, um, of course, Brenda Laurel, um, and Shigeru Miyamoto, right? Um, are the are there more than that, or are those the only three? That's so the far? that's the three that are out now. We're actually uh, we're negotiating a contract soon on the next couple, so I can't really talk about them, but there'll be more. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I know. I'm like, what comes next? Um, I know, isn't it exciting? <laughs> I know it is. Um, so, but the the Brenda Laurel book, um, I'm I'm interested in because I've always been interested in Brenda Laurel because of the 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 space that she occupies historically and culturally when we start thinking about games and specifically games for girls. Um, and so, I always I have for years. Um, talked a lot to both kind of my game design and my game and my more kind of uh, feminist game theory classes about the work that Laurel, uh, about the work that Laurel has done. Um, what made you choose her? Um, I really like, I, let me think. I mean, that was, that was the book. Like even when we pitched the series, I was like, this is the book I want to write. Like this is really um, important to me. And she's super interesting, right? So, like, some of it is just, like, 
she's already like a super super interesting person. Um, if you haven't read it, she wrote a short book called Utopian Entrepreneur. An entrepreneur. That's kind yep. of, like yep. after it failed, and I, I mean, first of all, like I can't imagine how wrenching it is to like go back and revisit like this thing that like really went awry on you like that mm-hmm. that you really poured yourself into. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also you know she's super smart. Like she. Um, she has a PhD in theater, which is, like, this weird background to have to end up in gaming. And then, like, when you yeah. talk to her, you're like, oh, of course this happened, right? Um, but, you know, so she's super interesting. I always thought the games were very interesting. And it's it's they're one of the few companies that really makes this concerted effort to integrate um, a particular kind of research into the design process. Um, which is a lot of what I wrote about because I, I really liked that. But it's also just this, like, she has, like, such a, a kind of, like, beautiful humanistic understanding of what games can do that's really based on, like, you know, an understanding of drama and storytelling and art and theater. Um, and I love that, right? Like, and, and that's just something that, to me, is I think is really important. And I also, like, um, you know, like, I... I just, I feel like there's so many designers that don't get their due. And that's part of why the series exists in the first place, right? Is like, mm-hmm. we we have, we talk about game design and there's a few people that get a lot of attention. And, and I'm not saying they don't deserve that attention, but there's a lot of other people that should be getting lots of attention too. And if you talk to people in the industry, the designers they think are really important are often not the ones that like people know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like, we were really interested in like, who do other designers think is really interesting? Or like, you know, uh, Jennifer and I both teach game design and I'm like, well, who do we want to be able to teach our students about? Yeah. What do we want our students to be able to do? And I'm like, I want them to be able to go and research an audience that they know nothing about and figure out how to speak to that audience in a way that's meaningful and solves a a real problem in their lives, you know? And, and that's so much of what the story of purple moon is, is, is researching girls and what they need and what problems they're facing and figuring out how to speak to them about those in a way that's meaningful to them. Right. And this is like part of why the games get reviewed badly is because they're really for girls. And so if you give them to middle-aged software critics, they don't make sense. (laughs) You know, like, um, I worked on a, I worked on a project last year and we made a prototype game for, um, research, but it was for two to three year olds. Right. And, and like, I give it to adults and they're like, oh my God, this is so boring. And I'm like, I know, I know, but it's for a two-year-old. It's different when they play it. Like, I promise. <laughs> and like, it, it sounds like totally like, you know, but then you go to a two-year-old and they're like transfixed. Right. And I'm like, I'm not wrong, <laughs> you know, about mm-hmm. this. So I was just super interested in her. I'm interested in all the weird ways that people end up in the games industry, especially early on, because people, it's not professionalized. That, you know, 20 years ago in the way that it is now. It's certainly not professionalized 30 years ago the way that it is now. Um, and so people come from really interesting backgrounds and they bring in a lot of different perspectives. Um, and I just, I don't know, like, I like, I always, like, I always feel like if I can do anything, like, I want to take, like, devalued stuff and be like, no, this is why this matters, right? And, I, and like, it's obvious that her games have mattered tremendously to people, right? Like, she still gets, she still gets letters from people who work in the industry now that say, the first games I played were your games, And they made me want to make games, right? And, like, that's a huge legacy to have. And it's, I think also it's important to be able to talk about failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important to think about, like, if, you know, it's it's like a cliche that history is written by the winners, but it it really shouldn't be, right? And and sometimes, you know, I I was at an entrepreneurship awards thing earlier this week. They were honoring uh, Howard Tolman, who founded 1871 uh, here in Chicago, which is a big uh, nonprofit startup uh, incubator. It's very cool. And, you know, one of the things that came up at that event is they're kind of roasting him is like, it's just as bad to be too early as it is to be too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of what happened with Purple Moon is it's too early. Yeah. Right. 
um, because they're still shipping physical products. And she swears up and down, and I believe her, that if they hadn't, if they'd been a few years later and they weren't shipping physical products, the company would have survived. Hmm. And would probably still be functional because the overhead costs of shipping software were so high. It was just too high. Um, and a lot of the investors pulled because they saw everything moving to the web, but they weren't fast, you know, they weren't able to pivot like that and just move to all web. Um, and so they just didn't have the funding con- to continue. And if you go back and play those games now, um, it is so, so easy to imagine them as iPad games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, like 10 years later, these are like total, like these do totally well, right? Like in this like very different way that's impossible in the mid, in, in the mid to late nineties. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I, and she's super interesting, right? Like, um, I, like if anybody's gonna read like one section of that book, like just to humor me, like if they're like, I don't really care about this book, uh, <laughs> read the interview with her. Um, at the end because that interview is covers so many things and it's so interesting and like she has such incisive thoughts about like interface design and testing and design research um, and, and like she knows all these interesting people right like she's like talking about working with Ray Bradbury on things and, and, and like her friend Timothy Leary and it's like you know it's, it's really I think her career trajectory is about being in a very particular place in a very particular time but also having this like really distinctive um, viewpoint approach to things. Mm -hmm. Um, And she also comes out of the business part of the games industry, which I don't think we talk about as much. Um, Because she she worked in production at Atari and, like, oversaw ports of games and, like, was into product differentiation and all these things before she goes over to the research part. And so, like, you know, like, she knows the business part of it, too. And and that's super interesting. So I don't know. I mean, I think with most things, I'm just, like, I got really interested in this and now I kind of obsess over it because I have a job that rewards me for doing that, right? Like, which, like, is the best part of my job. It's like, I don't know. I just want to think about, like, this for a while. And, like, everyone's like, all right, think about that. (laughs) We need, like... We need business cards that say that's why we're academics. <laughs> like, come back later when you've thought of something instead of just thinking about it, right? I mean, and so, and you you mentioned Utopian Entrepreneur, and that's a, that is a book that I that I I often assign, especially to um, the students uh, in CGT um, who are actually our design students um, in the in the. The, our school of technology, which is now called the Polytechnic School, yeah, um, because I try to enforce upon them this idea that we can learn through failure, and that there's lots that we can learn by failing. I'm like, you, you've everything you know about games, you've learned through failing. Um, I said, and and the same thing is going to go for the rest of your life and your career. You will learn through failure, right? And then to have them read Utopian Entrepreneur and to to sit back and see how we can reflect upon our past experiences and learn from them. Um, and that was that was one of the it's been one of the the best resources I think they probably they they may or may not agree let's put it that way um, <laughs> that I think I can offer to them in terms of thinking about failure in some very pragmatic ways um, you know we always talk about failure in games and how we learn through kind of failure repeti- repetition and scaffolding and the like but to talk about it in a more uh, pragmatic sense when you start talking about what to do with your actual kind of career life and business um, Utopian Entrepreneur has been great for that. So, um, so Brenda Laurel is, uh, cause you didn't, did you play Purple Moon games when you were a child or I'm, did you I'm miss that? I'm too old. Yeah. I'm like a little too old for it. Um, and 
so I didn't. Um, I went back and played them all, which is, if you would like to know about a time in history that is very difficult to deal with as a, as a researcher, um, computer games from that CD-ROM era are actually a real pain. <laughs> um, because they're too new to boot and DOS, mm-hmm. and they're too old to run on any con- contemporary operating system. Yep. Um, and so we set up... Um, we set up a laptop that's actually running on like Windows XP, mm-hmm. um, like one of my very old kind of junky laptops, and they'll run on that. Um, but then they use QuickTime Two. Oh. Where do you get QuickTime Two in 2017? Good question. Good question. Um, yeah. And they're totally unplayable without it because it's it's video interludes. Like that's what you're rewarded with throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of like posed this question to the internet and uh, Jason Scott, who's at the Internet Ar- Archive, was like, oh, I think I have a solution. And he actually went and dug through, there used to be uh, CD-ROMs that came out that were like compilations of content from magazines, mm-hmm. like kind of a forerunner of magazines having websites. Yep, and I remember. he went through several of those for me and found one that had QuickTime 2 on it and sent it to me. Um, but if somebody hadn't been able to do something like that, those games would have been totally unplayable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they're actually, they've become quite rare. Um, I paid... Some of them were cheap and some of them were very expensive. One of them, I never found a copy that actually had the the case. Um, like, I, I never could find one. Um, there was also a lot of merchandise that they produced, like toys and things like that. And I found a few things, but most of those are, like, totally lost to history. Like, I have no idea. Um, you know, and I, and I watch eBay for them all the time still because I'm just like, I just, I just want to see what they look like. Maybe they'll be pictures. And, and it's really... It's really rare that that stuff shows up. Um, so I have like some figurines and a backpack. Um, but they did a lot of things, um, different toys and things. And it was really this like really well thought out kind of transmedia product line. Um, so yeah, so I'm a little too old to have played the games. I definitely kind of like remember them, but mm-hmm. they were they were like at the like right like I, I was too old. Like I was too busy being cool or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whatever awkward thing you do in middle school, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I was I was way too old because I was like actually an adult, um, but I was like, but yeah, I mean, and that's to talk about that for a second. Um, the the problems that you ran into with trying to access these games, um, and to talk about like history and pragmatics um, and preservation, right? I mean, I know that you know when we start thinking about it, like I'm I am seriously interested, and in, I've played a lot of. Um, like the old point and click adventure games, um, especially when you start talking about when you start talking about folks like Jane Jensen, right? Um, a lot of those, a lot of those early point and click adventure games, um, the the machinations that you have to go through to get them to run on even older machines sometimes, right? So it's you know not only the software that's present, but whether or not the machine, the hardware itself is running too fast to run it. So then you have to find software that slows your machine down in order to run it. Because one of my favorite games and they did a re they did a remaster um several years ago was Grim Fandango. Oh my right? gosh, so she's I gonna was, talk about Grim Fandango now. I We're all it's talk over. I'm not going to talk about Grim Fandango. Not really. But, I mean, that was one of the reasons that, you know, I had constantly, every year I would replay the game, right? Right around uh, the Day of the Dead, I would replay the game. Um, But it got so difficult to actually be able to slow my machine down to the point that it would run. 
that I, I had stopped running it. I mean, I stopped playing it or replaying it um, a, a, a couple years before the remaster came out. But to start thinking about, and that's an important thing to think about, is how we preserve these kinds of artifacts um, for future study. Uh, and and like when I was I was at E three a couple of weeks ago, and when Microsoft said that they were going go, they were going to go backwards compatible, even back to the original Xbox games, I got super excited uh, because other people were like, "Wow, you can play all the you can play all the original Xbox games." And I was sitting there thinking, "I don't give a fuck about these original Xbox games," but I can't as a gamer, right? Because not many of them were games that I actually liked, um, at least the ones that they've announced so far. Uh, but I was like, the the possibility for games historians um, and for using is them in the classroom. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. Right, right. I mean, because it, it's it's difficult. I mean, because I, I find myself like taking my old consoles in or scouring used game stores, right? And you get you get you get shady looks from the business office when you bring in these receipts from used game stores. It's like I bought a I bought a twenty year old console. And here's the receipt. They're like, yeah, okay. Um, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, so those kinds of things are, are difficult as academics, as historians, as teachers of game design, when you want people to not only, I mean, and sometimes I, I, I'm kind of a, like, and I, to, I tell this story too, right? I've told it a couple of times. My kid was like, I want to play Pac-Man. And I was like, well, damn it, if you're going to play Pac-Man, you're going to play Pac-Man in the way you should play Pac-Man, in the way that a lot of kids experience Pac-Man first off. And I broke out the original Game Boy and was like, here's Pac-Man. Um, and I mean, because there's something about that experience, experiencing things, not not in the case of Pac-Man, because that was a that was a, a cabinet game, but experiencing get things in, on their original platform. There is something to be said for that. Um and uh, so to start thinking about things like how to preserve uh, games as cultural artifacts, I think is a, a super important thing. Um, and that's the, I don't know, that's the nerdy bit of me, I guess. Yeah, well, and there's some point, I mean, like, um, there's some degree to which some of these things aren't preservable in their current form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in some ways, like, I'm on the board for the Learning Games Initiative uh, Research Archive in Arizona, and, you know, their whole thing is play, is preservation through use, right? And so, if you're doing research, um, even if you're, like, a child, like, you can be, like, a, a grade school class, um, they'll make an agreement with you and mail you stuff to use. Um, cool. cool. To play. And... and but it's partially through, it's because of this understanding that we're like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project right now and we were looking for an Apple IIe and they're like, you know, like realistically, the odds of you finding a, a working Apple IIe that'll actually run properly at this point are like really, really slim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that, of course that's true, right? But I mean, if you think about like uh, CD-ROM is actually not a very stable medium. Um, you get bit rot, you get outgassing. Um you know, older cartridges are very, very susceptible to moisture and dust. Um, and many of them have been moistened over and over again because <laughs> people used to believe you should blow in them. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's some degree to which, like, we maybe can't preserve some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in that, in that way, like, I think part of what's really important is actually doing research about it now so we're getting description, thick descriptions and we're getting screen captures and stuff so at least kind of know what these were. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And and this is, like, why, why, like, MAME as a project is so interesting. And, like, the side effect of MAME is actually the preservation of software. What they're interested in is, like, the architecture of the hardware. Um, you know? And, and so it's, it's definitely, like, a super complicated problem. And it's super interesting. And, like, access is a problem. But then it's also, like, you know, like, realistically, like, we might... I mean, we're going to start losing stuff soon. Um, there's going to be stuff that's, that's gone. Right? Yeah. And so... Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of interesting intellectual property things that like contribute to that. But it's like, basically like what can be preserved, we need to preserve. Um, but we also need to make sure people are actually accessing because a lot of these things, even if we preserve them very carefully, they're not stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing we can do to make them stable. And so if we try and preserve them more by making them inaccessible, we're actually, we're ensuring they're forgotten. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, it's, and uh, can I just say really quickly mm-hmm. that uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to say it. Um, things do get lost, right? Like there, there's tons of history that will just we will never fill those gaps. Um, but we understand preservation, I think, in ways that you know, just weren't possible, you know, hundreds of years ago. So we get really anxious about it. And of course, mm-hmm. we should preserve as much as possible, but it is inevitable that some things will just be lost. Right, but I think we're—I think the thing we're seeing is not necessarily what we saw hundreds of years ago. I think we're seeing something more akin to what happens with early film, where we've uh, lost about ninety yeah. percent, uh, or I think it might be higher than that. Right, like we've lost a huge percent. Yeah. So there's very, very important yeah. movies that nobody's ever been able to see right. who's alive right. now. Um, and some of that's just because they were regarded as junk for so long. Yeah. And some of it's because, you know, they literally burst into flames, which is not useful. Um, but <laughs> that is bad for preservation. It's really bad for preservation. Right. Um, but, it, but it's also like, so I think that's sort of what we're looking at, but it, there's ways to kind of at least get fragments of things. And absolutely. We're never going to be able to preserve everything, but we also know that like, if you basically leave paper in like a not terrible environment for a long time, it can actually sit there for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. still there, um, and that's probably not true with a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, and but then we also have to contend with companies who don't want things preserved, which is ridiculous because yes. they're often not doing the preservation work themselves, but they don't want anybody else to do it either. Because heaven forbid, in twenty years, you might make a dollar off of your preservation, right. or people who are trying right. to rewrite their own histories, right? I mean, because you talk about early, you talk about early film, right? If we look back at like the old, like the some of the old um, Disney, uh, and some of the old Disney films, right? Some of the old Disney shorts, right? They they purposely have pulled, recalled, are hiding, have destroyed uh, a lot of that stuff because it was it was politically problematic um it was racist it was sexist and they don't want to be associated with it anymore so if they can make sure that it is not preserved right right then right. they can they can deny it yeah i love with disney though I, and this is probably a rumor but it's a really great rumor which is that they they're not not preserving it it's in a vault that nobody has access to so it's in, <laughs> like I, I love this right this is like a great rumor that's like meticulously preserved but like totally inaccessible <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, and like, and, and in some ways, like those are, those are complicated questions, right? Like, um, of like, what's, if you realize something you did or like you, the company did like 50 years ago was like really, really bad. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? 
right? And, like, what's your social responsibility? And, like, what does it mean to, like, accept accept responsibility? And then, like, also, like, do you allow it to circulate so people can be aware of these things? Or do you suppress it? Because, in fact, we don't want these hateful things circulating. And, and that's a hard that question, a hard right? question. <laughs> See, I don't think it's so hard. I don't think it's so hard because, I mean, we can't deny history as it exists, right? Because I think, you know, as a marginalized person, I think to deny that that history exists denies denies our experience. That's true. Right? No, so, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I'm all for Disney preserving um, preserving that those artifacts, right? Because it becomes more and more difficult for us to look at modern things um, and talk about connections that we see and to talk about a history of a medium or a history of a technology based on those things when we know that stuff exists and, and it's stuff like I've seen some of the I've seen some of the race some of the super racist super sexist Disney stuff um, because I have I have a friend who's a Disney scholar um, who had who had access to it right I'm not gonna say if it was legitimate access but it was access right <laughs> yeah so but it, but it becomes difficult for me to make that argument um, when. For example, we're making an argument about why um, that sense of nostalgia and the art style of something like Cuphead is problematic for folks of color. Um, it becomes difficult to make that argument when we can't access the originals. Right. Um, and I think that's super important. Um, and, and, and I'm really pissed at Disney for that um because we do see we do see you know folks coming full circle and starting to look at you know like oh we're looking at you know the old art styles and i'm like well you can't look at those old art styles and look at them in a vacuum because there's all this baggage that exists around this stuff um yeah yeah so I think that's it's super interesting. I think it's super interesting on a number of levels when we start talking about preservation. Um, and yeah, I want Disney to get their shit together. I feel, if it is in a vault somewhere, I hope I hope that they are uh, maintaining it well and that someday uh, a, a Disney heir will say this needs to come to light again and that yeah, they have not burned it all. Well, and, and they're super complicated anyway because there's lots of stuff that they don't release in the U.S. anymore that's available in other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I think the last release of Song of the South was actually in, like, 1991. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something like that. Like, it, it's, like, much later. Um, and they put out most of it on VHS at one point. Like, it, it's, like, this really weird kind of fragmented history. I want to say, wasn't that one in the 90s also cut? Yes, so the one that made it to the U.S. was absolutely cut. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure the ones that were put out in like China were actually cut. Yeah, because Song of the South is problematic as hell. <laughs> oh right. Well, and it's often the one when people are like, "Remember this thing?" Everyone's like, "Oh God, Song of the South!" Right. Um, and and I think there's, I know there was a Japanese version maybe on Laserdisc. So like, there's lots of versions circulating. Um, but yeah, there's like a, I don't know, there, there's so many questions about like what, yeah, I mean, it's, what they're doing with that. It's interesting the way that we see this in film, right? Because I was, I was recently watching, 
um, an old was it an old Fred Astaire Christmas movie? Um, oh, what what was it? The one with the 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 sister song. Remember the two sisters? Uh, was it? Is that White Christmas? I don't know. I have to look. Well, I was recently watching it, and and as we got to the point, because there is a minstrel show, uh, in the in 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 the movie where they that they're doing to kind of preserve this lodge that they've been staying at, right? To save the lodge for uh, an old army buddy who's running a lodge, um, and the minstrel show came on, and I was like, I could have sworn that these folks were all in blackface. When I saw this movie the yes. very first time, right? So, I mean, and to to go through and see that they are actually not only, I mean, because not only going through and cutting sections of films, problematic sections of films out, but going through and recolorizing films so that actors are no longer in blackface, right? I'm, that is amazing when you start thinking about not only um not only kind of the time the the way folks were perceived in the time but also thinking about film as cultural artifact right right, right. it's like you're erasing that um there's um the recut of fantasia actually cleans up um a lot yeah if you've not seen the uncut parts it's like it's shocking yeah. right you're like watching yeah. you're like holy what's happening um and, you know, I've watched that movie over and over and over again, but I had always watched the cut that came out, like, 1996, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'd never seen an original print of it, and somebody went through and just did a side-by-side of, like, how they digitally remastered, and I'm like, they could really, like, wow, <laughs> not have just released that and not had problems with it. And, yeah, I, oh, gosh, like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, really weird, and, and, you know, I think, speaking to, your, to some of what you're saying, Ashley, like, we forget how recent the history of blackface is. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I was at University of Texas and like, you're like reading up in student organizations and I can't remember which organization it was, so I'm not going to name one, but it was not a fraternity. Like it was not a Greek <laughs> organization. Um, but there was some, I'm like reading and they're like, and they did an annual minstrel show until 1958. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that is really late. Yeah. Like, um, but then like, I'm like, on the other hand, like, was it that late? Like, how much is this going on that like, I just don't read about it because I'm not meticulously reading university history because mm-hmm. of like weird personal obsession, you know? Um, and clearly pe- at least some people thought that was like an okay thing for them to be doing or it would have stopped at some point earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because white, it was white Christmas. It was white Christmas. And, um, the film, that was 1954. And that was, it, it was, there was blackface in the minstrel show. I, I specifically remember it, right? And it's, it's interesting because I, I'm old enough that I saw a lot of these, especially the, the quote-unquote children's films in the 70s, right? Um, so the problematic bits were still there because they didn't start thinking about taking the problematic stuff out into the 80s and 90s. So, um, and I've got a, a, a good enough memory that I can look back and I'm like, wait, that, that wasn't like that when I saw that as a kid. I mean, and sometimes it kind of, it kind of makes you feel like the industry is gaslighting you because there are very specific things. Like when I saw the, when I saw the, the remaster of White Christmas, I actually took to Facebook and I was like, okay, somebody help me. I was like, because I specifically, 
specifically remember this minstrel show being in blackface and there were other folks who were like yeah I remember my like other like other folks who were about my age they were like yeah I remember first time we saw like my you know I saw it with my mother and I was like five and or ten and my mother was really pissed because you know there was this this, this scene in blackface yeah they've redone it it kind of makes you feel like they're gaslighting you in some in some interesting ways because if you have memories like very specific memories of that stuff and now you get the remasters and there's no indication right that the remaster is any more than than making it look pretty and sound better right it becomes really problematic um yeah i mean i think there's a lot of value in like i mean it would be really interesting to have like a three minute pre thing that's like hey this used to have a bunch of like really racist stuff in it and we think that's bad now you know (laughs) right so we cut some of it like at least then you know it was there Instead of instead of trying to pretend that it never existed, mm-hmm. right. right? Yeah, and it's really so way back, like I don't know, three days ago or so. Carly said, um, <laughs> Carly said something like, "It's a it's a tough decision for the companies," and we've been discussing it from a larger cultural lens since then. Mm-hmm. Like for us, it's really troubling because we need to be able to see things in context and understand history, but. You know, also consider if you if you are part of a company, and I don't want to defend, like, fucking billionaires because fuck them. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that if I'm, like, on the board of a major company and, like, we had done some really horrible problematic shit, I can understand, like, weighing that, like, uh, even if you're not super thoughtful. Like, do we want to preserve this for history or do we not want to look like we don't care about people? Well, mm-hmm. we want to keep making money because money is the best. So we want to, you know, wipe that away. So I can understand where those decisions come from. Uh, and I think it is hard from that perspective. And then I think to add to that, you also have some movement, in, in, I'm going to say from not necessarily academics, but we'll say from academic spheres to not teach certain things even in context. And so there's even more reason to remove some of that stuff and becomes a very complicated question. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, I hear a lot of people saying, well, I don't want to teach such and such because I just don't know how to handle it. Like, well, you know, I mean, yeah, it takes a lot of work and concern and care to weigh some of these really troubling historical things in context. But mm-hmm. we, we do need to be able to see, like, where we've come from. If we don't see it, how are we going to not make those mistakes again? Well, and I, I think I think also like I, I think this kind of scrubbing like it also contributes to this kind of like narrative that like is very soothing, uh, but that that like there's some kind of like progress being made like across yeah. time, right? Yeah. But in fact, we know it's like way more complicated and weird than that. Right? Like, there's more women in the workforce prior to the Great Depression than there are until well after World War II, mm-hmm. um, right? Because they all get they get pushed out during the Depression and then during um, after World War II, but you know, our, our, our sense of this is that, like, women come, like, roaring into the workplace in the 50s and 60s, and then, like, it just, like, takes off from there, but, like, we know that's not true, mm-hmm. right? And and it's, like, it's weird because, like, you'll still kind of feel like it's true even when you know it's it's not, and so I think, like, some of that scrubbing becomes a problem for that, too, where it's, like, we think the past is different than it was or like i love there's a i'm blanking uh i think it's doherty's last name um but there's a book called pre-code hollywood 
it's great if you like film history. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about um, Hollywood films before the Hays Code. And like, you go and watch these movies, they're like, this is a racy, racy movie. There are naked people. <laughs> and it's like weird and sexy. And and it's like, oh yeah, because like Hollywood was like not, it wasn't actually just like super buttoned up and wholesome. And then like the 60s happened, right? <laughs> like it's actually like this weird, complicated thing happened. Um so yeah, like some of it's like we don't want to make those mistakes again, and some of that's also like we need to own who we are. Yeah, because we're, we're still those people. Like people in the past aren't dumb. Yeah, right. right. Like, yeah. and I, I always tell my students, I'm like, look, like when you think about the past, like I think there's this tendency to be like, wow, people were stupid, but they're not. No. Like, yeah. you know, like a lot of times it's like the best understanding people have at the time, or it's like actually like if you were dealing with these circumstances, you might behave very similarly. Like, you know, and it, it's just hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, I don't know. Like I, I love teaching history, but it's also so complicated. And it's like, I teach uh, history of video games specifically. And my students are like, I, I love, I love, I love um, giving them um Colossal Cave Adventure and having them play it. And they're like, this is hard. I hate it. I'm so angry. I'm like, you know, that's interesting because uh, he made it to to share with his five-year-old daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm kind of pushing their buttons, but it's also true. Like, he made it to share with his young children mm-hmm. as he's going through a divorce. But it also wasn't made to be played alone. And my students, for whatever reason, always go play it alone. And it was meant to be played, like, together. Right? Like, maybe with a sibling or a friend or, you know, something like this. And... You know, it, but anyway, like, so we talk about games like, oh, the graphics are crappy. And it's like, that's not the point, right? Like, think about the mechanics. Think about what's happening. Um, and it's hard to get past that. It's like when you go and colorize all the MGM movies and they suddenly look like garbage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because they were beautiful black and white films. Like, it's just, it's a weird, I don't know. I mean, it, it's media preservation, but it's also kind of like thinking about who we who we were and who we are. Yeah. And, you yeah. know. Yeah, if we push some of this stuff further off in the past, like we can ignore our own culpability in the way in the way that we all st- some of us still benefit from these in- inequities. It's it's like the 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 way that it's like almost completely impossible to find uh, Little House on the Prairie, uh, the uh, a full run of Little House on the Prairie these days, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, Little House on the Prairie, if you've ever read the books, they're horribly racist. Um, and you know what? The TV show is not much better. Right. Um, and it, it's, it's like, it has absolutely disappeared. Right. You can't find it in the, you can't find it in the libraries. I could, when I was looking for, um, I was looking for, uh, a copy on DVD, right? Because I wanted to, I wanted to see if I wanted to show it to my, to my then eight year old. Right. Um, and it was impossible to find. Um, we had one copy in a library, um, that was like, that was local. And I had to have it shipped from that library to one of the libraries that was closer, um, so that I could actually go pick it up. Um, and then, and I started to watch it. I'm like, well, no wonder, right? No wonder, <laughs> you know, they're trying to hide this now. I was like, I had completely forgotten most of this, right? I mean, things that you remember, right? When they they would talk about in the books, right? The that they would see a caravan of Native Americans or engines, right, walking past the door, and I was like, 
That was because they had stolen the land from Native Americans, right. and that was the fucking trail of tears walking through their front yard, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, these kinds of things, right? And then, um, and and I'm, I'm saving money for therapy now, um, but these are the kinds of things that I, like, talked to my kid about when we, w- we would watch this. She was like, well, what, what's going on here? I was, I was like, okay, so let me tell you what it is they're actually seeing here, right? Um, and then there was that see, and then there was the one with the with the with the uh, with the the black folks, right? And I had forgotten that Todd Bridges paid the little the little the little black boy that was talking about white folks calling them nigger all the time. It was Todd Bridges, um, and I was like, God, am I that old that that's actually Todd Bridges? Because he and I were pretty close in age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just to see all of that and to know, I mean, that kind of erasure. I think mm-hmm. is 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 problematic for all the reasons that we've talked about. But then also to get back at talking to being able to talk about what it means that this was okay in that time. Yeah. Right. And and right. television's another case of, of very, very poor preservation. And I can't remember the stats on it. Um, but there's there's incident uh, and some of this happens. There's been some recent writing about how this actually has been happening over music rights, that they can't circulate stuff because they didn't they only bought the rights for broadcast and didn't buy them for. Right. Because nobody uh, knew. Putting yeah. In recording. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, that's an interesting problem, but um, for example, there's this for years, there was no available copy of um, if you ever watched Murphy Brown mm-hmm. when she's mm-hmm. pregnant and real live Dan Quayle was angry that Murphy Brown on television was pregnant. Right. Yep. Right? right. And like said, this was like horrible. And the show responds like there's an episode in the show that's her being like, you know, responding to this. And this is like this super interesting moment in television history. And there was no epi- there was no copy of that episode available for years. Yeah, I remember that. I do, too. Yeah, I do too. it was a wild time. Right. But and so it's just again, like I, I think like when we start thinking about preservation and access, like it's it's. um it's a problem for researchers, but it's also a problem for like making sense of like a pretty recent past, yeah. you know? Yeah. Cause Murphy Brown was what the nineties. Yeah. That was not a lot. Yeah. I remember it. it. Cause it was like one of the first big controversies that I understood some of and, and was, was pissed about because it was, it would just felt so stupid. Like, Oh, this is, you know, corrupting people who will think that this is okay. Like it's television. It's, we need to see a reflection also, of, of it, life. It is okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, really there, there's there, you're, you're a politician and there's nothing better you can do than attack, uh, a TV character. character. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess some things just never change. <laughs> Well, yes, 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 and yes again. Um, <laughs> see, see how quickly we forget. We Everything forget is awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we forget Dan Quayle did it, and then of course we forget, you know, that there are connections to what we are currently seeing now. Mm-hmm. Thank God Dan Quayle didn't have Twitter. <laughs> that would have been problematic. Just a little bit. All right. All right. Um, um, wow. That was fun. There's, uh, so, there's so many interesting kind of intersections uh, between larger, larger 
uh, more mainstream, shall we say, I won't say larger, but more mainstream cultural issues in the work that you do, uh, Carly. And I'm super glad that one, you're doing the work and two, that you've come on to talk to us about the work. Um, what are you working on? Here's a big question. What are you working on now? Sure. Um, I'm working on a book with uh, Matthew Thomas Payne, who's at Notre Dame now, um, on Ultima. And so we've been working on that for a while, and it's supposed to be due soon, but we'll probably, we'll see. Um, we're working on it. We're trying to hit a deadline. Um, and so I've been working on that. I just put in a proposal for an alternate reality game um, that may or may not happen. And then I've uh, I've been working on a game um, called Ritual that's actually a, a tabletop game for, it's a conversation game, but it's intended for processing grief. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's done some light testing. I need to go back and do more testing, but it's uh, it's like it's a it's a it's emotionally taxing for me mm-hmm. um, to do the testing. So it's been kind of slow going, um, but those are those are kind of like my open projects right now. Mm-hmm. So so you say you're working on a, an alternate a proposal for an alternate reality game, and I want to go back for a second um, because you talked about the the game that you did for toddlers. That one was on uh, language acquisition. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then you did another game called Choice Texas. Yes. Tell us about that one. Um, so Choice Texas was released in 2014, I believe. Um, and that was, um, I, I played, I was playing a tabletop role playing game with some friends and I became like super interested in the way that like the character creation process works and like how carefully balanced it is. And I'm like, you know, it's interesting because we talk about real life, like it's like this, but it's not right. Like in fact, um, it is not balanced and, and things aren't fair. And so I got really interested in that kind of like un- unfairness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the way that like our, our taught our rhetoric around reproductive access and reproductive healthcare and things like, things like this is so about like choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And it makes it sound like these are just like decisions you're making in a vacuum that are, you know, where all things are equal. And, th- and that's like totally not true. Right. And so I got really interested in like kind of, I was like, can you make a role-playing game that's functional where, like, it's not fair, right? And and I think the answer is probably no, actually. Um, but I, I got really interested in this, and so I'd been, like, writing out, like, little sketches of, like, how this could work and, like, if it could work. And I, I just, like, had been thinking about it and thinking about it. And um, I couldn't make it work because I think it's fundamentally unworkable. Um, and so then, like, when we started seeing this wave of, like, really interesting twine games in the early, you know, in our, like, 2012 2011 around there um i was like oh like that's a model like like you know like a fork you know like a a decision tree model for this could totally work and it was interesting because we were initially we thought like oh we'll do like a character and then like we can like copy over parts of the text so it's not going to be that much i mean it'll be a lot of writing but it won't be so much because like some of it will be the same Mm -hmm. um but in fact, like nothing's the same. And so that game, I think, I can't remember the word count. It's over 50,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So it's, it's, a, it's almost the length of a novel. Um, because in fact, like those experiences for those, those different kind of characters we came up with are so, so, so um, disparate, right? Like they're not, they're not similar. There's not anything that copies over because, you know, how much money you have and where you live and how old you are and how nice your family is to you and like so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, are really critical yeah. factors there. Yeah. Yes. So it's really, I mean, you know, and, and we really tried, and I think my favorite my favorite response to this to the game was um, someone who's actually in a pro-life group in, in Austin, and he was like, well, you know, like, 
you didn't tell them what to do. <laughs> right? And, and like we didn't. Like you can go you can you can make whatever like within reason you can make a lot of different choices yeah. in that game because you I and and I think like, you know, ideally everyone should be able to make a choice as if it's in a vacuum, right? Like as if it's really just about what they need and they want and not about like you know, their finances or their housing or, or like their abusive acts or like their their family isn't being supportive. Like it shouldn't have to be about those things, but it often is. Um and so the game's really kind of like thinking through a lot of, of those things. It ended up being really timely in a way that we couldn't have anticipated mm-hmm. um, because it happened, like we happened to launch the fundraising just as the legislation in te- legislature in Texas decided to really ramp up um, regulatory efforts. And it meant like we were frantically redoing the ga- like sections of the game the whole time we were developing because the laws kept changing, Jeez. Um, which was like really intense. Um but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an, it was a super interesting project. There's stuff now I look back and I'm like, oh, I would totally would have done this thing better. But um, I think you know, I worked with my friend Allison Whipple, who's a um, creative writer, um, and she also teaches like business and technical writing. Um, and you know, she and I worked together on that, and and she'd been on the um, board for some feminist organizations in Austin and things like this. And you know, for both of us, it was the first project, first games project that either of us had released. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely first project at that kind of scale. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we got this kind of like, I mean, shockingly, we had some backlash. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one, one was this guy that was like really angry that we raised money for. He was like super pissed. And I'm like, man, like we raised like $10,000. And like if you added up all the labor, this is like an $80,000 game. Like this is like man, a massive amount of, of like man hours went into this game. Mm-hmm. And like most of them are uncompensated because it was me and Allison. We paid everyone else. Um you know, and it's like, you know, he's like, all you need to make a game like this is time. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, we all live under capitalism, right? Like, we're all selling our, our lives out in little hourly increments. <laughs> like, why is, like, my time not worth anything and yours is? Like, um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just, that that part's fascinating where people are like, oh, how, how dare you, right? Um, but, you know, it was it was a it was a really interesting experience at, at, a, at a lot of levels. Um, and... I I'm glad we did it. We got it into a couple um, a couple different places. Um, so it was in the arcade at Games Learning, Games Learning Society a few years ago, um, and it was in um, different games. Um, so you know we got into a couple shows. It got written up a few places, and that's kind of like that's the trajectory of the game. Like it's kind of uh, done then. Um, and some of it's that like those laws actually do keep changing, and we just can't. Like we can't keep updating it like that. So in some ways it's, it's already becoming a time capsule. Yeah. I, I, I have to admit that, uh, I went through and and started playing it. Um, if you don't mind, I will put a link to it in the show notes so that other folks can see it as well. Oh yeah, please do. Yeah. Okay. Cause I think it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and then because we don't want to keep you all night, I have one last question for you. Sure. And this is a question um, that is an, a, really an unquestion. And that question okay. is, if there was something um, you would have wanted us to ask you or something we would have wanted us, you would have wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about or we didn't ask about, what would that be? I like saving that one for last because it's really hard. <laughs> it is a really hard question. <laughs> 
Well, and, and some of them, like, some of the questions they always expect at the end are things people ask a lot. Like, what's your favorite game? Or, you know, and it's like... See, we try um, not to do that because that feels so gatekeeper Yeah. But if you want to tell and us your favorite I mean, game, that's totally cool. I always cool. say the same thing, as I always say Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite game is Tetris. I'm really good at it. I like it. It makes me Tetris happy. is so awesome. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you guys covered a lot of stuff. I mean, I think... Um... I think that, how about this? I'll end with the, the thing that I always try and tell tell people. Like if people ask like, oh, how do you do this? Or how do you, because I've gotten, I get asked a lot, like how do you start making games? Because you're not, I'm, I'm not trained to make games at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's totally, I watched a video of Amy Poehler <laughs> and she's like, great people do things for before they're ready. Just do it. If you fail, like whatever, you learn something about yourself. And I think that's like the best advice I've ever gotten. Um <laughs> And like, I really, you know, thinking back to failure and what we were talking about with Utopian Entrepreneur, it's like, yeah, go fail. Yeah. You know, like yeah. go mess something up like real bad, maybe in public. Right. <laughs> um, and like, I hope not. Right. Like, I hope all your stuff goes awesome. But if you don't, if you don't try and do that, like you're not going to know what you could do. Um, and I think most academics are the kind of people and most grad students, too. Like, they're and not that grad students aren't academics, but like at all levels, all academics, um, are often people that are used to feeling super competent and feeling pretty good at things. And it's like, what if you just spent some time being like really, really bad at something, right? Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't have to be making games. Like maybe you can take, you know, you like decide to take up pottery or you decide to start running even though you're like terrible at it. Like, I mean, don't do something you hate. Like that's not the point, right? But but like something, like those things that you're always like, oh, I wish I knew how to do this. Like what if you just went and did it? Right. Exactly. And, and it's, it's hilarious because my my mother's in town visiting and my daughter is because she my daughter, my daughter is is pretty much. She's like, OK, I'm, I'm bragging a little bit. She's an amazing artist for a nine year old. Um, mm-hmm. And so she's uh, she's always trying to get my mother to try to draw or paint or color or sketch or anything. Right. Um and mama and my mother's like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm horrible at it. And we went shopping for craft supplies yesterday, and she was trying to talk my mother into getting a sketchbook. And she was like, just get a sketchbook, pick one, we'll pay for it. You know, of course she's always offering my money. <laughs> and, yes, very sweet. <laughs> and she and she and she said something. It was exactly along those lines. And she was like, you. She was like, when I started, I drew stick figures all the time and I was really, really bad at it. But I really wanted to do it and I really enjoyed it and I got better at it. Sometimes you just have to let yourself be bad at things. Yeah, and sometimes you don't get better at them and it's still valuable. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times our story is this kind of like thousand hour rule story where it's like, oh, I did this thing and then I and then I achieved, right? right? And that's great. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not in no way discrediting this. Like it's awesome that like your daughter learns how to draw. It's like that I actually make a game that you can play and it doesn't crash all the time. But you know, like I also like I did yoga for years and I'm actually not great at yoga. Like I don't have very good balance. Like it's fine, yep. Yep. you know. And I go to the gym and I lift weights and I'm pretty good at lifting weights, but we do a bunch of other stuff, including like running and like, I'm bad at it Mm -hmm. and I'm never going to be good at it for like a whole host of reasons, but like, it doesn't matter. Oh my God. I sing all the time and I love singing and I'm a terrible singer and it's fine. (laughs) You don't have to be good at everything, but you should still, if you enjoy doing it, you should. I'm not going to stop singing. Everybody just has to deal with it. (laughs) 
like dealing with my cuckoo clock. <laughs> I was like, I love your cuckoo clock. <laughs> See, <laughs> but you know what? The cuckoo clock is a perfect note to end on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you guys both. Um, thank you both for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Night and, uh, it was amazing. Thanks. It was amazing. Thanks for coming on. Um, it was a great time. So with that, that's going to bring us to the end of episode 155 of the Not Your Mama's Gamer podcast. And until next time, when we have episode 156, which will be equally fascinating, but not nearly as charming as the wonderful Dr. Carly. Um, until then, stay cool, stay safe. And as always, my friends, game on. Thank you.